Good morning, everybody. It has been uh, quite a week around here, quite a week. Uh, last Sunday was Youth Sunday, which I sat in the balcony for, which was so weird for me. I, I'm either like preaching at another campus or, or right here. And so it was really cool to sit up there and just be in awe of what God has been doing through youth ministry in our church. We're praising God for kids who came to Christ in this last year and they're actually having their youth Sunday at our promontory campus uh, this morning, which, by the way, to just give an update on talking vision and what God's been doing at other campuses, our second baptism ever is happening at the promontory campus this morning. So, so cool. Planted in, uh, it in September, having our second baptism this morning. We're celebrating that. Yesterday, more than 70 men gathered to discover what uh, Jesus th- uh, tells us about manhood. I'm so encouraged about that. Women's ministry just wrapped up a season looking at Philippians together. So we could just keep talking and talking about the amazing things that God is doing among us. We're so grateful. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Exodus chapter 20. We are starting a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Are you excited? Yes! Ten Commandments. Here we go. This is going to be very... Uh, interesting. And we have a lot of work to do this morning. So I, I, you're going you're gonna to need your thinking caps. It, it may feel more like a classroom this morning than church. But believe me, we'll get all the way there. We'll get all the way to uh, the heart as well. But we're going to need to think through a lot of concepts together this morning. Before we dive in to the Ten Commandments, I want to read to you some of the modern Ten Commandments, rules that Westerners actually live by. And this is, a, this is not just uh, some authors writing, oh, as I observe culture, this is what the commandments are. No, they, they did a really thorough survey in regards to morality and culture, and then they crafted the modern Ten Commandments. I'll just share a few of them with you, not all ten But before I do, I want you to know that these are based on our culture today and based on what's called moral relativism, which is the idea that we're free to make up our own rules based on our own personal preferences. That concept rules the day in our society. So with that concept in mind, here are a few of, not the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Modern Commandments. One, I don't see the point in observing the Sabbath, so I won't. I will steal from those who won't really miss it. I will lie when it suits me, so long as it doesn't cause any real damage. I will cheat on my spouse. After all, given the chance, he or she would do the same. I will procrastinate at work and do absolutely nothing about one full day in every five. This isn't just made up. This is like survey data. That actually happens. I've read some interesting surveys. Gen Z, Generation Z, the the kind of the young adolescents right now, um, have just doubled in their view that there is no God in atheism. Um, But by and large, our culture at large is actually still very interested in spirituality and God. So surveys show interest is as high as ever in regards to interest in God, 
while at the same time morality is in decline. Now that is a strange combination that only has one explanation. People don't know the God of the Bible because it would lead to observing what he says. Interest in God remains high, but morality is in sharp decline. Why? Because we're interested in the morally relativistic God, which is the God of my imagination, the God who, wouldn't you know it, thinks the same way I do. But because of the shrinking regard for God's law, it is ultimately because of a low regard for God. Sure, God in some conceptual way, but not God himself. Let me read to you. Maybe it's been a while for you, or you've never heard these, but I'm sure most of you had. These used to be in the public square here and there, but they are disappearing. Here we go. Exodus chapter 20, start in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord's, the Lord your God, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain." Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within, within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey. I know that one's hard for you guys. Or anything that is your neighbor. Neighbors, there are the Ten Commandments. Donkey coveting? Anyone? No? Okay. There's a lot of confusion, though, for the Christian. Okay, how do we approach the law? And when I say law, Torah means law, and Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Okay, so when we're talking about the law, we're talking about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then wisdom literature, historic literature, prophet literature, right, makes up the rest of the Old Testament centering around what's called the Mosaic Law, the the Law, the Torah. There's a lot of confusion. Christians often say, right, aren't we under grace? We're not under the law, we're under grace. And yes, that is absolutely true. But then also Jesus comes along and says things like, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right? I I haven't come to do away with it. I've come to illuminate it even more clearly. So, I guess the question to start is, how do we as Christians approach the law, the Ten Commandments being the the summary, the condensed version of the law? Let's talk about the relationship between the law and the gospel here as we get started in this series. 
I hope this is clarifying to you. Like I said, we have to do some thinking of some concepts here, but I'm trying to make them as clearly articulated as I can in a few different ways. Help us see how we as Christians, followers of Jesus, are to relate to the old covenant. And I want to say this. One of the reasons we're doing this series is so that we are less confused as followers of Jesus when we open our Bibles to the Old Testament. We should be able to learn and learn in this series, learn a lot through how we handle the Ten Commandments and how we handle the whole Word of God. I, I, I hope, my prayer is that it will really clarify a lot of things so we can be good students of the Word. So here's the first thing I want us to look at. I want us to look at the three types of the law. There are three types of the law. This isn't a perfect uh, concept I'm about to share with you because there are some laws in the Old Testament that don't cleanly fit into one of the three types I'm going to share with you. It's a little more complicated than that, but this is a help as we get started. Three types of the law. Are you ready? Here's the first. The moral law. We could say that the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's the righteous and eternal standard for our relationship with God and with others. We'll get into that more later. The second type of the law is the civil law. The laws that governed Israel as a nation. Things like guidelines for waging war, restrictions around land use, debt and loan regulations, and penalties for violations of Israel's legal code. These were all a part of the civil law, the nation of Israel's law. The third type of the law is the ceremonial law. Included in this are the regulations for worship in the sanctuary, for religious festivals, and the whole sacrificial system. If you were to sit down this Sunday afternoon and read the book of Leviticus, as I'm sure many of you will, you will be absolutely overwhelmed with the regulations regarding the sacrificial system. That's the ceremonial law. Clean and unclean foods, instructions for ritual purity, guidelines for the conduct of priests, and detailed instructions for offering sacrifices. Okay, let's move quickly. The ceremonial law is no longer in effect. Why? Because all its regulations pointed forward to Jesus. Colossians 2.16 puts it this way, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. These are ceremonial law issues. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are ceremonial law issues. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ, it says in Colossians 2. Meaning now that Jesus has offered himself as the once-for-all atoning sacrifice for sin, no more sacrifices are needed. Jesus paid it all. To continue, actually, to follow the ceremonies would actually be to deny the sufficiency of the cross. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. But there are two ceremonies in effect in the church Still, or now, you know what they are? Baptism, which is happening at Promontory this morning, and the Lord's Supper, which is happening across our campuses this morning. And both of those ceremonies look back at the cross. The civil law is no longer in effect for a different reason. The church is not a state. 
the laws that governed nation Israel may be helpful in some conceptual ways for governments to thrive in the world today. We could talk about that. That would be a fun dinner conversation for like three of us. But the church isn't a state. The church isn't a country. We have a king. His name is Jesus. But his kingdom is spiritual. And his commission to his disciples is transnational. Go to the nations with the gospel. So the civil law is no longer in effect. The ceremonial law is no longer in effect. Because they were types and figures pointing forward to the cross and kingdom of Jesus. So this is where it gets really interesting. You, we hear this a lot, right? Somebody says, like, a moral law. And they say, well, you, I mean, you trim your beard on the sides of your temples and things like that. Well, that was a ceremonial law. But then if there's a moral law within that context, that stands. See, what the New Testament does not do is declare an end to God's moral law as the standard for our lives. Even just looking through these types here, I hope it's helpful as you study the Word of God to differentiate. Okay, does this, where does this fit? What, kind, what type of law is this? That's why in the New Testament a lot of times it seems like it's doing away with the law. And you're like, what? And then other times it's like, no, the law stands. You, sh- you shall keep it. And you're like, which is it? What do I do? Because sometimes it's referring to ceremonies that have been absolutely beautifully fulfilled in Christ. Or civil laws that, that pertain not to a, the gospel communities around the world, but to the nation of Israel. Let's move to the next three. The three uses. Is everybody having fun? (laughs) This is the hard work we have to do as we dive in. Three uses of the law. Here we go. First, here's what they are. A map, a muzzle, and a mirror. Here's the first. The first use of the law, a map, meaning it guides our conduct. The law does this. The law is useful for instructing us in righteousness. It helps us know what is pleasing to God. It shows us how to live. I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress with, to my boys, and it's the story of Christian who is trying to find his way to the celestial city, and you get to look at the map and all the hardships along the way, but he is en route to that place, and he wants to follow God. It's a map. The law, the law of God is a map that guides us. It's good in that way. The law is also a muzzle, meaning it restrains evil. God uses the law to restrain sin in society. Simply put, the commandments with their accusation of guilt and threat of punishment discourage people from sinning against God. Oh, this this is not God's will. God says that I should not do this thing. There might be consequences. It restrains evil. The Ten Commandments are, in summary form, God's desire for humanity. This last week, my wife Emily took our dog Bailey to her annual vet checkup. I mean, this is the, we've only had her for a year, so this is the first annual checkup. And part of the exam was a little scenario where the vet needed to check on things that were not exciting for Bailey, not th- something she wanted going on. And as the vet started to do that, sorry, I know this is not great church talk, but as the vet started to do that exam, I'll say it just very broadly, um, Bailey went to like bite my wife's face. Like it was, it was like, whoa, right? And then the vet just, I'm going to put a muzzle over her mouth as I have to do this exam. And then as she did the exam, Bailey's mouth went to Emily's face multiple times. Like, if, if, if she was not wearing the muzzle, 
my wife's face would not be as beautiful as it is right now. So one of the uses of the law is as a deterring, deterrent, having the preventative purpose of keeping God's people away from sin. This is one of the ways we parent, right? Don't jump in that pool. You'll drown. You jump in that pool, you're going to drown, right? And so it's like, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I shouldn't jump in that pool. There's consequences. That's the muzzle part of the law. The third use of the law is as a mirror, meaning it shows us our sin. The law does that. The Ten Commandments expose our sinful motives and behaviors for what they are, the transgression of specific commands. We often talk really broadly about, oh, I'm a sinner. Yeah, but in what ways? There are specific sins, and they are sins because they're going against God's instruction. And so what God's law does is it, it's held up as a mirror in our lives to show us our transgressions. When you look in a mirror... A mirror can show you that your face is dirty, right? But you know it would be a weird thing to do with a mirror? Take off the mirror and try and wipe your face clean with the mirror itself. The law, a mirror can't do that, nor can the law of God. The law of God can show us our face is dirty, but you know what the point of the mirror is? To drive us to the water that can cleanse us. That's the mirror effect of the law. I'm a sinner. I need help. It's showing me myself, and I don't like what I see. The mirror cannot fix that for me. But it can drive us to the water, the cleansing agent, which is Jesus Christ. The law can't save us, but it can drive us to a Savior. For people to come to Christ, they need to know their lawbreakers. I, I find this is missing in a lot of contexts today in, in our, our church world. Is, is we present Jesus as like a, a pretty little accessory to our already wonderful, clean, sterile lives. Just add Jesus into it. When the law is not made clear, people don't know that they're transgressors. They don't know that they're broken. They don't know that they're sick. They don't know that they need a Savior. But when you see what the law does, shows you yourself as a mirror, it actually drives you to the gospel and makes the gospel wonderful. And you're like, oh, I need this. Jesus is amazing. But without seeing our need, which the law shows us, we think, eh, a little bit of Jesus is nice because I'm already a great person. The law is that mirror we need. Now, I'm going to give you four. Actually, I'm going to give you a bonus one. Four and a half reasons to obey the Ten Commandments. Here's the first. You're doing great. You're doing really great. Here's the first. They reveal the character of God. This is a reason to obey the commandments because in the commandments are revealed the character of God. Every commandment reveals an aspect of God's character, of what he's like. I'll give you an example. One of the commandments is do not steal. That's a negative, right? There's a negative tone. Do not do this bad thing. But there is a positive, and you know what it is? If it reveals God's character, it means God's just. Stealing's wrong. God is just. God is a God of justice. Not only that, we can trust that if God is saying this in his character, which he is of every single commandment, if he says don't steal, you know what? He's never going to rob us. He's good. He's just. 
The Ten Commandments express God's will for our lives because they're based on His character. The moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments continues to be important for us to obey today because of the close relationship, the moral law, and the character of God who gave it have. The second reason I would suggest for us to obey the Ten Commandments is because they were written in stone. That is awesome. If you read Exodus 19 and 20, there's this scenario going on where God appears in deep, thick cloud and thunder rolls, and there's like trumpets and stuff. It's wild. I actually watched the Cecil B. DeMille version of Charlton Heston recently, uh, The Ten Commandments. Oh, that's, that's an enjoyable scene. You really check it out for many reasons. It's fun. But in this scene, it's quite wild, and, and, and the people are freaking out. And, and, and because God is more awesome than our categories. God is more awesome than how we often… We, we like to think that we can conceptualize every aspect of God and put Him in a box, and then God appears and speaks. And we're like, whoa! And that's what happens. And God speaks, and God, with the finger of God, writes Himself. He, he writes the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. Stone. These commandments were meant to last written by the finger of God, these Ten Commandments. They were the only part of Scripture that was put into the Ark of the Covenant, and the Israelites would carry around with them. Sounds like they're binding. Sounds like they matter. Sounds like they should continue to be in effect. And when we really think about the Ten Commandments, of course they should be. When would be an appropriate time to worship other gods or to murder or to steal? Never. A third reason to obey the Ten Commandments, they're reaffirmed in the New Testament. If you're like, well, I'm a red-letter Christian, or I'm a New Testament believer, I just read the New Testament. Well, the New Testament reaffirms every single one of the Ten Commandments. These commands are not only reaffirmed in the New Testament, they're often even further illuminated. Jesus clarifies them even more. But Jesus in Matthew, Matthew 22 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, the Ten Commandments are a summary of the law. Jesus has just summarized them even more. It's like he knew Twitter was coming, you know? Like, I'm going to have to do this in 150 characters. I can't bring… Even 10 was, is now too long for the modern person, you know? So he, he like, this is the whole law. Love God, love neighbor. We're like, I can, I can get that. <laughs> so… And that's the way, that is the way the Ten Commandments work. He's just summarized it even further. Commandments one, uh, 1 through 4 have to do with our relationship to God. And commandments 5 through 10 have to do with our relationship to one another. Jesus reaffirms the Ten Commandments. Fourth, they are ways in which we can glorify God for His grace. We talk about this a lot. It's even in our vision statement that God would get glory through us. We talk about that a lot, but what does it mean? Like, how, do, how does my life bring glory to God? Well, one of the ways that it does is that it's through our joyful law-keeping, our joyful keeping of His commandments. When we keep God's commands out of joyful response to the gospel, He gets glory. I want to give you a bit of encouraging news here at this point. Because I've already told you that the law is like a mirror, and we look in the mirror and go, oh no, I'm a mess, and we feel badly about ourselves. 
And we, if, you, if you read the Old Testament, you see that Israel over and over again fail. It's like, here's the standard, and they miss it, and they miss it, and they miss it. And it's like, oh, this is hopeless. Well, when someone, here's the thing. When someone repents and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they're released from the power of sin and the condemnation of the law and receive new hearts. And that's a game changer. The spirit of rebellion against the rule and authority of God is replaced with the spirit of obedience. I I truly mean that. The Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us takes us from having a spirit of rebellion and puts inside of ourselves a spirit of obedience that actually makes our, our, changes our desires to want to honor him. Jeremiah 31 prophesied about this coming day in Christ when it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, that's the covenant in Jesus, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's this covenant, the Ten Commandments. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I want you to hear this. What I'm telling you right here is gospel-driven internal motivation replaces external moral restraint. In the Old Testament, It was external moral restraint. That was the law. For the follower of Jesus Christ, it's gospel-driven internal motivation. We were given new hearts. Not hearts of stone, hearts of flesh. Amazing. That's why John in 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And you might be going, wait, no, they're super burdensome. But no, why are they not burdensome? Well, because they don't save us. Jesus does. So we can gladly, joyfully obey his commands, not to save us, but to shape us. Not a burden to crush us, but a gift to guide us. We keep the law not as a way of getting right with God, but as a way of pleasing the God who has made us right with him. Only the gospel changes the heart and can lead to lasting changes in our lives and actually gives us a joyful obedience to the commands that were never achievable until Jesus changed everything. Well, that was a neat introduction. Now let's get to the first commandment. I've, I've written this very brief. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. Starts in Exodus 20 with two verses that I, we didn't read as I read the Ten Commandments, and they're really critical. Here's what the first two verses say before the first commandment. And, the God, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So you need to hear this right out of the gate. The Ten Commandments don't begin with the law. They begin with the gospel. I'm the God who freed you from slavery. Personal God. I'm your God. And I've done things for you. Your life is different because of my engagement with you. This is not a distant God, but a personal God, and a personal God who has actually done wonderful things for us. So the Ten Commandments start with not law, but gospel. And that's so critical for us to see, which is really the bonus reason of why we would want to follow the Ten Commandments. It's the best reason of all, because God is personal. I am the Lord your God. 
and has freed us from the bondage to sin. The first half of Exodus, we studied Exodus last year, 1 to 15, the actual Exodus out of Egypt. It's all about the rescue from bondage to slavery. The second half of Exodus, which we're picking up here, is all about proper service for the one true God by keeping his covenant. Now let's get to this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. What does that mean? I've summarized it. The first commandment does away with atheism on the one hand, no God. But also, on the other hand, does away with polytheism, more than one God, and pantheism, everything is God. The first commandment steps out and says, there's one God, I am that God. You shall have no other gods. The first commandment assumes that there's one true God, there are no others. And it also addresses within this first commandment the great problem of the human heart, which is idolatry. You shall have no other gods, inferring that we would. Now, I'm not going to get into this, so I'll give you a brief summary. The Christian view on God and gods is that there really only is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. There are no other gods. It's not like the other world religions that claim to have gods, that those gods actually exist in this world as well. No, there is one God in the world, and He ought to be worshipped rightly. Yet, at the same time, there are false gods. We, our hearts are idol factories, and we chase after these false gods. We chase after them, and Satan loves that we do, and he actually fuels power into these gods that are not gods at all. Ultimately, they're nothing. Ultimately, they don't exist, and yet our hearts are so… they chase them. And so God is giving us a warning here. There I'm the only God that exists, but your hearts will still try and find another. Like I said, our hearts are idol factories. See, our crooked hearts want God, not as He is, but as we desire Him to be. I think this is one of the biggest challenges I'm, I'm facing as a pastor today, is I'll talk with somebody and I'll, I'll show them a truth in the Word, and they'll look back at me and say, I don't want a God like that. I don't think God's like that. Well, it's, this is what it says in His Word. Yeah, but I don't think that's what... God's like. It's, it's really hard to, to work with that. But it's, it's totally the culture of our day. What I feel that God is like must be what God is like, is, is what we're dealing with. To that we say, and the Ten Commandments say, no, the divine revelation we are given in Scripture is what God is like. He's written it down for us. Francis Chan talked about the verse where it says, where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. God is saying, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And then he goes on to say, why are you trusting your thoughts? Why are you trusting your thoughts? God even says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. And then, but the culture of the day, even in, in the church as well, is this, no, I don't think God's like that. I think God's like this. Therefore, I'm going to believe that God's like this. What? Your thought, you have a crooked heart. And God has given us divine revelation and told us what he's like. It's critically important for us to grasp this. Regarding idolatry, simply this. To love anything more than God is to make it a God. To love anything more than God is to make it a God. Two questions that help you determine what gods 
you're worshiping are this. What do you love and what do you trust? Origen in the third century said of what do you love? What each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. Whatever you love most is your God. What do you desire? What do you think when you're finding your mind wandering? How do you spend your money? What gets you the most excited when you tell a story to your friends? What are you just most exuberant about? What do you love most? If it's anything other than Jesus, it's an idol. Look, there are many wonderful things that we should love. Our family, it'd be great if you love your work. I love my work. Praise God. That's, it's good to love those things. It's good to love all kinds of things, but they should always be subservient loves where God is our chief love, and out of gratitude, we praise Him for every other thing He's given as a gift that we love in our lives. But it always falls under that. The other question is, what do you trust? Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher, wrote, to trust in anything more than God is to make it God. To trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. Is there an addiction you're trusting in? Are you trusting in your job, your social position, your life insurance policy, your retirement plans, security? If I live in a safe neighborhood, if I have enough money in the bank account, if my kids check in daily and tell me they're okay, then my, I trust in that. Trust in yourself. Listen, none of these things will save you. What are you trusting in? None of them will save you if, other than Jesus. Quick story. Say that a first century Christian, just imagine with me, beside every one of you here was a, and we like to space ourselves out so this would actually work, Beside every one of you is a first century Christian. Maybe they're from the church in Philippi or Colossae or Rome. But pretend with me that right beside you is a first century Christian and they came with you to church today. They're going to leave church with you today. They're your guest for a while. They observed you coming to church. They're going to think, wow, they, they seemed moderately interested in what was happening. They'll go with you. Maybe, I don't know, but maybe they'll observe you, you set faith aside for the rest of the week. Your Bible doesn't open. You don't gather with other people to encourage each other in the faith or pray with each other, or they don't see you telling other people about Jesus, and they think, oh, interesting. I guess it's not really their God, but it's a social thing on Sundays for them, I suppose. And then, of course, they're staying with you for a while. Eventually, they see your room, and they notice the Justin Bieber poster on your wall. This is accurate, right? The Justin Bieber poster on your wall. He's Canadian, unfortunately. And and there he is, and they go, oh, that's interesting. Out of all the things that they could have on their wall, they have this big poster of this weird dude. And, uh, and then they notice, you know, you teach them how to use an iPhone or an iPad or whatever music cataloging device you have, and they go, wow, you've really purchased a lot of songs by this person and, you, and movies and, uh, that they're in, and, and you also have concert tickets. And because they're your guests, you get one for them as well, and they come with you to the Justin Bieber concert, as you do. And then they're watching you at the Justin Bieber concert, men, screaming, belting out all the lyrics. This is super accurate, I can tell. This was my youth ministry illustration, and I've just worked it in here. Uh, 
Sometimes you have to recycle. Uh, and so they're just, wow, like this is, that's their God. They're a believer. They're a believer. And I realize that that illustration applies to two of you and to Tyson, but listen. <laughs> I'm on like a three-week rotation of uh, coming back to you, my friend. But insert the Justin Bieber. Maybe it's the Seahawks because they win more than the Canucks. Maybe it is the Canucks because you're that diehard about them. Maybe it's the person you're dating. Maybe it's the pursuit of, of success that you are so focused in on. Maybe it's just acceptance or ultimately it's family. End of story. My family is all. Or academic or career significance. If that person or thing is anything other than Jesus, it's an idol. Our hearts are idol factories, and many of us are so caught up with lesser things. Some of you play church, but he's not the ruler of your life. Man, I'm a pastor in Chilliwack. I know this. Some of you play church, but Jesus isn't the ruler of your life. You're ruled by substitutes, not Christ, and you know it. If that's the case for some of us, and it certainly is, what then? Let's close with this. No other gods means no other name than the name of Jesus. Let's get back to this, what do you love, what do you trust concept. The only thing that can tear our hearts away of all our other affections is true love for Jesus. And the only thing that can replace all the other things we trust in is putting our trust fully in Jesus. Jesus came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. No other gods. To deny that Jesus is the only way is to say that there are other gods and to directly oppose the first commandment. But the fact that there are no other gods and there are no other names other than Jesus by which we can be saved is such a beautiful thing because no other gods left heaven to save you. No other gods kept the whole law for you. No other gods offered a perfect sacrifice for your sins and was raised from the dead to open the way of eternal life to you. So it's Jesus and Jesus alone who deserves your devotion, your praise, and your life. To know God, we must know Jesus. And to know Jesus is to know the one who fulfills and transforms all the law and all the prophets, for he himself is God's new law. Do you know Jesus? And do you live for his glory? You shall have no other gods. After all, it's Jesus who says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of your bondage to sin, out of your slavery to Satan. Of course we shall have no other gods before him. No other God can do that. I'm going to invite you to stand, if you will. We're going to do something over the course of the Ten Commandments. We are going to recite a... Um, we're going to recite... Thank you, brother. A million dollars. God bless you. 
we are going to recite a, a, a responsive reading, um, a confession, and every commandment we preach on, so next week will be the second, we'll add a section on that. So by the time we get to the 10th commandment, it'll be like a five-minute sermon and like a 30-minute reading, okay? But we're just going to build on it every time. It's a beautiful confession. I'll, I'll read where it says leader, and I invite you to read aloud where it says all. Holy and righteous God, we confess that like Isaiah, we are a people of unclean lips. But it is not only unclean lips we possess. We are people with unclean hands and unclean hearts. We have broken your law times without number and are guilty of pride, unbelief, self-centeredness, and idolatry. Affect our hearts with the severity of our own sin and the glory of your righteousness as we now acknowledge our sins in your holy presence. We have had other gods before you. We have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We have sought satisfaction in this world's pleasures rather than in you. We have loved to praise our own glory more than yours. O God, we have sinned against your mercy times without number. We are ashamed to lift up our faces before you, for our iniquities have gone over our heads. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? How shall we answer you? We lay our hands on our mouths. We have no answer to your righteous wrath and just judgment. We have no answer, but God himself has mercifully provided one for us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We are going to respond in the most beautiful way to Jesus, the fulfillment of the commandments. We're going to respond by saying, oh, Jesus, left to our own devices, when that law is held up as a mirror, we are done for. But enter Jesus and his saving mercy and empowering spirit that allows us to joyfully, in light of the grace that he gives through his finished work on the cross, live in response joyfully to what he commands. If you, even just this morning for the first time, have put your faith in Jesus and say, yeah, as I think of brothers and sisters in Christ, I would say I'm generally right with them. There is no glaring issue that has not been dealt with, and you love Jesus, you want to live for him, I invite you to, in great gratitude, come and receive the elements, the body given, the blood shed for you. He did it for you. He loves you.